Well, it is indeed an honor and a pleasure to be back with you. You know, I wanted to do this uh, the first time I was with you, and I didn't want it to be too presumptuous on my part. You know, Dr. Stan Toussaint used to always tell us a joke before class. He loved parrot jokes, you know. Matter of fact, he told us dozens of parrot jokes, and I can only remember one. And I got Max's permission to do this. So here goes my attempt at his one parrot joke. Um, Early Thursday morning, a catastrophe happens to the local church. It burns to the ground. So the elders get together, and they said, what are we going to do about Sunday service? So they said, well, let's go to the local merchants. We'll um, see if one of them can let us use their place of business for Sunday service. Well, the only place they can get is the local bar, is the local tavern. And so the elders meet with the local tavern owner, and he says, yeah, sure, you can use it. We're closed on Sunday. But there's one little problem. There's a parrot in the bar. And he's got to stay because I have cats at home, and I can't take him home. So the parrot's got to stay in the bar. And the elders say, well, okay, I guess we can live with a parrot. So they, th- they also the elders also think, well, let's send the deacons in late after close on Saturday night and they can start cleaning up. So the deacons go in and they're cleaning up and the parrot goes, new cleanup crew. They didn't think anything of it. So then the worship team comes in and the parrot goes, new entertainment. Then the pastor shows up. You know, the pastor showed up. And he's showing people how he wants things to work. And the parrot goes, new management. Then the congregation starts to show up. And the parrot goes, same old crowd. <laughs> well, as Dr. Stan used to say, it has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. What we are going to talk about is how to die. Now, I'll use an old, you know, old Steve Ferrar, our good old friend, late Steve Ferrar, used to say, I'm just here to encourage you how to die. Yeah? Um, scripture tells us a lot how to live, how to walk. Ephesians 4.1 says that we're, wa- we're to walk worthy of our calling from which we've been called. Ephesians 4 goes on in verse 22 and 23. It says, lay aside the old self and put on the new self, which is made in the image of God. Even the last time I was with you, we looked at Galatians 5.25 that says, to live by the Spirit is to walk by Spirit. But what does it say about how to die? What does Scripture tell us about how to die? Well, as with many things, well, with all things really, Christ is our example. Right. First Peter 2.21 says he suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his footsteps. And today we're going to look at the last seven things that Jesus says, and he says them from the cross of Calvary. He does great ministry from the cross of Calvary. And I think he's leaving us an example of how we should prepare for our death, how we should approach our death. So we're going we're gonna to look at the seven things that Jesus says from the cross. Now, I apologize up front because we're going to flip around. Not all these seven sayings are in one gospel. So we're, we're going to be in Matthew, we're going to be in Luke, we're going to be in John, and we're going to flip back to Matthew. So I apologize for that, but we're going to flip around a little bit. But we're going to start 
in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, we're going to be in verses 38 through 44. Matthew 27, verses 38 through 44. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, and saying, You are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. But what we see is a lot of Psalm 22 here. Matter of fact, when you get to the crowd, Psalm 22, 7 says, All who see me sneer at me. They separate their lips. They wag their head. The same verbiage that Matthew uses, wagging their heads. Psalm twenty-two, twelve says, Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Basham have encircled me. The crowd is hurling abuse at him and saying, hey, you were going to destroy the temple. That was what he was being accused of. You were going to, you're going to destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days, save yourself. They said, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Remember, this was part of the same crowd that just a few days ago were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, son of David, from Matthew 21, 9. What had happened? Well, Jesus wasn't the Messiah they wanted. Jesus was uh, not a military leader. They wanted a military leader. They wanted somebody who was going to lead a revolt and set up the kingdom from the Roman Empire. Now this Messiah is hanging from a cross, beaten and bloodied. And they're, they're taking advantage of the situation. They're hurling abuse at him. And even the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, they get into the act. I mean, this is their moment of triumph. I counted up, I think it's five different times they tried to kill Jesus or plot to kill him or send people out to arrest him. And they finally have him where they want him. And they're taking taking advantage of the situation. They're saying, well, he saved others. Can he save himself? If he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Really? Wasn't too many days ago, was it, that he had raised somebody from the dead, Lazarus? Did he did they believe in him then? No, what did they do? They huddled up and said, "Oh, what are we accomplishing? The whole world's going on to, to him." And they plotted to kill him at the Passover. They go on to verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. I mean, that really is coming from Psalm 22, 8, where it says, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Throwing in his face his claims is what the chief priests and the elders and the scribes are doing. Verse 44, the robbers who had cru- were crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. The word there for robbers is listis. 
It's a, these were not common thieves. These were brutal thieves. These were thieves like we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan where they left their victim half dead. They're insulting him too. You know, Psalm 22:16 says, A band of evildoers have encompassed me. This is, this is heartbreaking. Look how they're treating our Savior. Look at, the, look at the Lord of Lord, the King of Kings. Look what they're saying about him. Well, how did our Lord respond? Well, we've got to turn over to Luke 23. Turn over to Luke 23, 34. Did our Lord have the power to come down from the cross? Absolutely. Absolutely he had the power. Matter of fact, when Peter pulled out his sword and cut off Malchus's ear at the the, uh, Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord said, stop this. He says, do you not think I can appeal to my father and he will give me uh, disposal of 12 legions of angels? That's 72,000 angels. I think 72,000 angels could have got our Lord from the, down from the cross. Probably one could have got him down from the cross. But look how the Lord responds. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. What grace. Wow, and this is just, it just blows me away. I mean, if this was me hanging from the cross and I had the power of the Lord, I mean, I would have been picking off these people. It would have been looking like a shooting gallery, you know. You know, 1 Peter 2.23 says, While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he didn't utter threats. He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Father, forgive them, for they know not what to do. Now, I know there may be a footnote in your Bible saying this is not in the best manuscripts. But experts believe this is an authentic saying of the Lord from the cross. They think there's more evidence for it being in the Bible than being omitted. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I mean, this is unconditional forgiveness. This is not forgiveness that's asked for or deserved or even accepted. It teaches us before our death, if there's people in our lives that we need to forgive, we need to forgive them. You know, God takes forgiveness very seriously. When the Lord gave the Lord's Prayer to the disciples, He put a postscript on it. He said, if you forgive others, then your transgressions will be forgiven. But if you do not forgive others, then your transgressions will not be forgiven. When Peter asked them, well, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times. He was being gracious because the rabbis said three times. What did he say? He said, no, not seven times, 70 times seven. Uh, You know, insurmountable times do you forgive him. Right? He gave him the parable of that slave, the slave that owed millions of dollars to the king. And the king wants to settle accounts, and he calls that slave, and the, and the slave falls prostrate at the king's feet and says, be patient with me, and I'll pay everything that you owe. And the king has compassion on him and gives all his debt. Yet that same slave, when he goes out and finds a fellow slave that owes him 20 bucks, what does he do? He chokes him, turns him over to the jailers till he pays what he owes him. 
And when the king finds out, he's furious. He's furious. And, what is, and he turns him over to the torturers until everything that is owed to him is paid. And what does the Lord say in Matthew 18, 35? My heavenly Father will do the same to you if each of you do not forgive his brother from his heart. Forgiveness is important to the Lord because it's a reflection of our heart. It's a reflection of our salvation. We're not willing to forgive. We need to forgive before our time of death comes upon us. And it goes beyond just forgiving others. It goes on to ask for forgiveness of those we've offended, right? In Matthew 5.23, on the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord told him, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and you remember your brother has something against you, what did he say? Leave your offering at the altar. Go and be reconciled with your brother. Then come back and present your offering. He was saying, hey, don't worship until you've made it right with your brother, until you've asked for forgiveness for offending him. I certainly don't think we want to face Jesus face to face, having to explain why we haven't asked for forgiveness from someone we've offended. I think from the first saying from the cross, we learn that we need to forgive and we need to ask for forgiveness before our hour of death. Now, keep your finger in Luke, because we're going to come back to it. Actually, you're probably not going to have enough fingers, but that's all right. Keep your finger in Luke, all right? And actually, I I take it back. We're going to stay in Luke, Luke 23. We're going to go over to verse 39, okay? And we're going to go through verses, Luke 23, verses 39 through 43. One of the criminals who were hung there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So now we see the criminals. One of the criminal is saying, hey, aren't you the Christ? Aren't you? I mean, that's Christos in the Greek. That means Messiah. It means anointed one. It means Savior of Israel. He's saying, hey, save yourself and save us. But now we see the other criminal. He has a change of heart. That's the beginning of salvation. He has a change of heart. And he starts rebuking the other criminal, and he says, Don't you even fear God? Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He says, Hey, we're getting what we deserve. He recognizes he's a sinner. This man is innocent. Verse 42, he says, Jesus, remember me. He knows his name. He knows our Lord's name. Jesus, remember me. He's asking for a relationship with the Lord. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's recognizing Jesus as the Christ, as the Savior. He's recognizing him as king, that he's Lord. He's recognizing Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
And how does the res- what does the Lord say? What's his response to him? Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Where's the purgatory there? Where's the baptism? Where's the works? I'll tell you where it is. It's nowhere, okay? Because it's not necessary or it doesn't exist. It's nowhere. Truly I say to you, to be in paradise with me. Paradise is only, the word is only used three times in the New Testament. We see it here. We see it in 2 Corinthians 12.4 where Paul goes up to the third heaven, the paradise of God. And we see it in Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 or chapter 2 verse 7 where it says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Paradise always means the abode of God, the dwelling place of God. Today you will be with me in paradise. Here's Jesus. He's got the sins of the world on him. 1 John 2.2, 2, he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only our sins, the sins of the world. And what is he doing? He's suffering greatly. He's struggling for breath, but he musters up enough breath. He musters up enough strength to say, today you will be with me in paradise saving one more soul a robber not a chief priest not an elder not a scribe a robber right what does that tell us tells us that we never retire from evangelism as long as we have breath we need to continue to tell people about jesus christ as long as we have breath we need to keep witnessing and if, God, if it gets to a point where God takes our physical health away from us and, and our sphere of influence is limited and we're only around the same people, that's okay. Then you continue to pray for the people that are out on the front lines, the missionaries. You continue to support those missionaries. You continue to pray for the lost. You have a heart for evangelism, a heart for witnessing. And even if the Lord takes our mind he, with dementia or Alzheimer's, doesn't the Spirit, doesn't the Scripture say that the Spirit will intercede for us? Romans 8.26 says, in the same way, the Spirit will help us on our weaknesses. Even if we don't know what to pray or how we should pray it, He intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. He picks up the, the mantle. He picks up the praying for the lost, and the praying for our missionaries. Let's never retire from evangelism. Never get to the point where you think it's somebody else's job. Let's look at the third saying of our Lord from the cross. I want to go to John chapter 19. Now, we will be going back to Luke, but John chapter 19, we're going to be in verses 25 through 27. John chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. And I'm going to start in the second part of verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. 
Now, if we compare this with the accounts in Matthew, in Matthew 27, 56, and Mark 15, 40, if they're, continue, if they're comparing the similar women or the same women, we learn a little bit about these women. Certainly, there's Mary, his, his mother, and then his, his mother's sister. And if we compare it to Matthew and Mark's account, we find that that woman is Salam, who's the mother of James and John. Many believe that James and John were related to Jesus, that they were cousins. And also Mary, the wife of Clopas, when you compare it to Matthew and Mark's account, you find that's Mary, Mary, the mother of James the Less, the other apostle James. I don't know why, the Less. How would you like to be called Bob the Less all your life? That's what Scripture tells us, and we'll go from there. And then, of course, Mary Magdalene, which we know from Luke chapter 8, verse 2 and 3, that Jesus had cast out seven demons. So we know who these women are, and we know Jesus is the firstborn, and Joseph is probably dead, and, and he's honoring his mother by providing for her. And, and don't get thrown by that word woman. That really can be translated ma'am. Behold your son, he says to the apostle that he that he loves, and then he says to him, behold your mother. I have to be honest with you, this has been a little puzzling for me. I mean, Jesus had half-brothers, right? He had James and Josie and Judas and Simon, and I know right now that they most likely are not believers. But why didn't he turn them over to one of them? I mean, James is going to Most people believe James is going to come to know the Lord shortly, right, when the resurrected Christ appears to him. Why John? Well, there's a lot of theories on this, a lot of thoughts on this. Some of them say, well, you know, John is very young, maybe 14, 15 years old, and he knows that his mom's going to live a long time, and he wants to make sure that John is going to be there to provide for her. He's honoring her. That certainly can be the case. We know that John is going to be instrumental in the ministry. Maybe Jesus wants Mary to live with John so he can kind of fill John in to what Jesus' life was before John joined the ministry. That could be the case. Other people say that his brothers are in Capernaum. The hub of the ministry is going to change from Capernaum to Jerusalem. John and his family are connected to Jerusalem somehow. Remember, John is the apostle that was known by the high priest. He got Peter into the inner court when Jesus was with Caiaphas and where Peter denies him three times. So, you know, some people believe that the Zebedees have a home in Jerusalem. Could be. Who better to leave your mother to than to the apostle that Jesus loves? That certainly could be, right? Well, maybe it's just in there for you and I. That we have a responsibility before we die to provide for our loved ones, right? Certainly of our parents. We think our parents are going to outlive us. We have a responsibility to honor them by providing for them making sure our brothers and sisters are involved and our spouse is involved and we know how that's going to work itself out if we're not going to be around. But it goes more than just parents. 
we have a responsibility to provide for our spouses, right? I, I don't know what that looks like for you. Could be life insurance. Could be investments. But you need to provide for your spouse if he or she's going to outlive you. You know, I'm going to make an earth-shattering statement here. My wife Lisa is younger than I am. And we've, to the best of our ability, have provided for her. I mean, she gets 100% of my pension. She gets 100% of our investments. She gets 100% of our assets. And hopefully that's enough to provide for her until the Lord calls her home. We need to provide for our spouses. And do me a favor. Make sure your spouse knows what all your computer IDs and passwords are. Yeah, I mean, it was, when my brother passed away in September 2011, my sister-in-law knew nothing. She knew none, none of his password, none of his IDs, and my poor niece is rummaging through his desk and trying to find, you know, IDs and passwords, and he had changed some passwords, and she's tr- requesting new ones or plugging, plugging some of the other passwords in. Make sure that your spouse knows your computer IDs and your passwords, and when you change them, tell him or her. Amen. Amen. <laughs> you know, it goes beyond providing for our parents and our spouses. Proverbs fifteen twenty two says, A godly man leads an inheritance to his children's children. Now, this may not be possible for you financially, but that inheritance can be more than money. It can be more than money. We need to make sure that our grandchildren know what we believe and why we believe it. We need to make sure they see it in our lives. And who knows, when we're dead and gone, maybe our grandchildren, when they're in a struggle or they're in a dilemma, a decision that they have to make, they'll think and say, what would grandma or grandpa do? Or as my grandkids call me, what would peepaw do? What would peepaw do? We have a responsibility to provide for our loved ones. Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. Let's look at the fourth saying from the cross. I'm going to make you go back to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. We're going to be in verses 45 through 49. Matthew 27, verses 45 through 49. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabbathana. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard this, began saying, The man's calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him. But the rest of them said, Let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. Now we see darkness. And how the Jews told time they started their day at 6 a.m., so from the 6th hour to the ninth hour would have been from noon till 3 p.m. We see darkness on, on the land. This is supernatural. This is not an eclipse. The Jews followed a lunar calendar. The Passover was always held at a full moon. 
And you can't have a solar eclipse if you have a full if you have a full moon. This is supernatural darkness. Darkness is part of judgment. We see that in the ninth plague of Egypt. Remember, they're crucifying the light of men. According to John 1 4, he calls them the light of men. So we see darkness. And we see the Lord cry out in his voice saying, Eli, Eli, that's Hebrew, that means God. Lama Sabathana, and again, I apologize for my pronunciation, but that's Aramaic. That would have been our Lord's native language. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's almost verbatim from Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It could be translated, my God, my God, why are you so far from helping me? It could be translated, my God, my God, why are you so far from my groaning? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And how fickle are the Jews? I, I mean, here they are, they're mocking him, they're making fun of him, and they think he calls Elijah, and they're saying, wait, wait, let, let's see if Elijah comes and save him. Right? How fickle are, are they? Well, they knew Malachi 4 or 5, right? That the prophet Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. That was a messianic prophecy. Matter of fact, you know, when Jesus asked the disciples, well, who do, you, who do the people think I am? And some of them said Elijah. But the spirit of Elijah had come through John the Baptist. And they're saying, well, let's see if Elijah, uh, Elijah saves him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is Jesus doing? He's lamenting about what he feared the most. What he, what he feared the most in the Garden of Gethsemane, that his relationship with his father would be broken, that he had the sins of the world on him. Habakkuk 1.13 says, talking about God, you are of pure eyes. You cannot behold evil. You cannot look on wickedness. The father had to turn. He had to forsake his son, separated from his son. Jesus loved his father so much. It broke him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As far as I can tell, it's the first time that Jesus is addressing God the Father, and he doesn't call him Father. He calls him God. Jesus went from calling God the Father, he went from calling him Father to God so you and I could go from calling him God to Father, that we could have a relationship with him. He was forsaken. We will never be forsaken. He will never leave us or forsake us. Hebrews 13, 5. I mean, in Psalm 23, 4, it says, even though we walk through the valley of shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for you are with me. Jesus won't forsake us in our death. He'll be with us. I mean, you're studying Psalm 23. Emmanuel Christians have studied. And you will see that you're not forsaken. You don't have to fear death. Jesus is the only one that went through the shadow of death alone as a believer. He went through it alone. We don't have to fear death. 
you know, I heard this illustration. I'm not sure where I heard it. I'd give him credit for it. There was a young boy. He was dying, and he was suffering greatly. And his parents, in order to try to comfort him, put a chair next to his bed and said, Jesus is here. Well, during the night, the boy passed away. His parents, when they went into his room, saw something peculiar. His head wasn't on the pillow. It was on that chair. It was as that boy had put his head on Jesus' lap. And Jesus was comforting as he walked through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, I don't, I don't know how many years ago, probably eight, nine years ago, Dr. Stan Toussaint, down, I still remember, it's down in the multi-purpose room. He said, I don't fear death. I look forward to it. Whoa, that took me back, you know. I mean, when they asked Walter Payton, the Hall of Fame Chicago Bear running back, if he feared death, he says, yeah, I never died before. But Stan, I think Stan knew that he wouldn't go through the valley of shadow of death alone, that his Savior would be with him. You don't have to fear death. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He will never forsake you, even in death. He won't forsake you. Now let's turn to the fifth saying. In John chapter 19, we're going to go back to John John 19, we're going to be in verses 28 and 29. This is the fifth saying from the cross. Verses 28 and 29, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop, and brought it up to his mouth. I am thirsty. If you remember Jonathan Murphy, a few weeks ago said, thirst is a symptom of bleeding out. Many believe our Lord bled out. That's why when they pierced him with a spear, out came blood and water. But don't miss what's in verse 28. After this, Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished, and then it says, to fulfill the scripture. It goes back to Psalm 69, verse 21. It's kind of an obscure prophecy. It says, they gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Gall can, it's not the gall mixed with myrrh that we see in Mark 15, 23, and Matthew 27, 34, that was a painkiller. He had refused that. Gall can mean just sour. Matter of fact, the Septuagint translates this as sour wine. They gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. This was wine that was left in barrels on the fields for the Roman soldiers. And over time, it would turn sour. Over time, it would turn to vinegar. I think King James translates this as vinegar. He gave me gall for my food and vinegar to, for, to drink. Hyssop's involved. We see hyssop involved in the first Passover. We see hyssop involved in this Passover 
when they're killing the Lamb of God. You know, Jesus fulfilled his ministry. He fulfilled over, I think, 350 prophecies in his first advent. He's taken the time, I am thirsty, to fulfill an obscure prophecy down to the last detail. He said in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 4, I have glorified you, talking about his Father on earth, having accomplished the work you have given me to do. Down to the smallest detail. Down to Psalm 69, 21. You know, you and I have a ministry. You and I have a calling. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. I don't know what that calling is for you. You have to figure that out. But I know there's something God has given you to do that only you can do it. Only you can do it. It's your calling. It's your ministry. You need to find it out. You need to do it. Don't reach the end of your life having regrets. Don't reach the end of your life saying, oh, what could I have been or what could I have done better to bring more glory to God? When Jesus says, I am thirsty, he's fulfilling his ministry down to the smallest detail. We need to fulfill our ministry before our hour of death comes. Now let's look at the sixth saying. I'm going to make you, we'll stay in John. We're going to go to John chapter 19, verse 30. John 19, verse 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In the Greek there, it's tetelestai, means paid in full. If you paid your Roman tax bill, that's what they would stamp on it. Tetelestai, paid in full. And if you borrowed money from somebody in the village and you wrote the terms of the repayment on a scroll and you paid it off, you would have that guy write tetelestai on it paid in full sometimes you'd take that scroll you'd get a big nail and you'd nail it in a tree showing everybody in the village it's paid for you know that's what Jesus did with our sin debt we have a debt against God for our sins right what's well, the Lord's prayer forgive our debts and forgive our debtors Colossians 2:14 says having canceled the certificate of debt consisting of the degrees that were against us, which were hostile to us, he was taking them out of the way, having nailed them to the cross. He paid our sin debt. You know, when we accept the Lord as God and Savior, as that thief on the cross did, there's an exchange made. It's kind of an accounting thing. Paul alludes to it. He takes all your sin debt past, present, and future, pays for it. It is finished. In exchange, he gives you his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin so that in him you become the righteousness of God. The sin debt is one debt you don't want to pay yourself. This is one debt even President Biden can't forgive. 
Uh, that was kind of a cheap shot. I'm sorry. <laughs> you got to get this right before your hour of death. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, this is the acceptable time. This is the day of salvation. I mean, I, I just left the sanctuary. You heard Pastor Chuck, and you're hearing this. Believe me, God, if you don't know the Lord as your Lord and Savior, he's appealing to you right now. He's appealing that now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of God's favor. Hey, this church has experienced sudden death. This class has experienced sudden death. There's no guarantees for tomorrow. Do it now. 1 John 5, 11 through 13 says, this is a testimony. God has given us eternal life. This life is his son, and he who has a son has life. And he who does not have the son does not have life. That's a cut and dry. I write these things so you may know you have eternal life. You may know it. See, when he says it is finished, we can know what our destiny is. I can guarantee you Stan Toussaint knew what his destiny was. That's why he didn't fear death. Have the comfort of knowing what your destiny is. Now, we'll look at the last saying. The seventh saying, I'm going to make you turn back to Luke. Back to Luke 23. Luke 23. We're going to be in verse 46. Luke 23:46. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. You notice he's back to calling his father, father, because it is finished. Right. You also notice, if you looked at the last verse of John 19.30, he bowed his head. Here, he commits his spirit. He quotes Psalm 31.5, Into your hands I commit my spirit. You've redeemed me, O Lord, of trust. He bowed his head and he committed his spirit. You know, if you and I die in an upright position, we don't bow our head voluntarily. Our head just naturally limps forward. We don't commit our spirit. Our spirit is taken from us. Jesus is orchestrating all this. John chapter 10, verse 18 says, No one takes it, talking about his life. But I lay it down of myself, I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. Our Lord was orchestrating all this. He died with grace and dignity. Grace and dignity. And you can see that if you look at verse 47, what does it say? Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And if you go over to Matthew's account, Matthew 27, 57, he says, certainly this man was the son of God. Now, I know the centurions felt the earthquake. He's seen the darkness. But he's also heard these seven sayings from the cross. He sees the grace and dignity that our Lord died with. We need to pray that we can die 
with grace and dignity, right? We need to pray that. Let us not get bitter. Let us not get, you know, stubborn. Let us not get hard to get along with, with our caregivers and our doctors and our nurses and our close loved ones. Let's pray that we can die with grace and dignity. Philippians 1.20 says, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. It's our last act of witnessing. It's our last act of testimony of how we die. Pray that we can handle it. We don't know what kind of suffering we're going to go through, but let's pray that we can handle it with grace and dignity. You know, Scripture does have a lot to say how we die. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's not die and have people in our lives that we haven't forgiven or we haven't asked for forgiveness. Today you will be with me in paradise. Let's never retire from evangelism. Let's never retire from witnessing. Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. Provide for your loved ones prior to your death. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He will never leave you nor forsake you, even in death. Even though you walk through the valley of shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. We don't have to fear death. I thirst. Fulfill your calling. Fulfill your ministry. It is finished. Paid in full. Your sin debt is paid for. Now is the time of salvation. Accept the Lord. Be apart from the body is to be present with the Lord. You can have the comfort of knowing what your destiny is. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Pray we can die with grace and dignity. It will be our last act of witnessing. Psalm 116 Verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you that you loved us so much, that you sent your Son, and that he was obedient to your plan, that we can die rightly, We can die knowing that we will spend eternity with you. Father, you're a great God. Strengthen us. Work in each of us. And Father, to that, we give you. We give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Bob. That was a great blessing. If you want to sign up for the fall party, the list is right back here. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.